Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. And there's layers to it, right? One piece can be maybe inner child stuff. And maybe it has nothing to do with inner child stuff. Maybe it has to do with the fact that, you know, the, the, the narrative for men is that they, you know, up until, up until now, they're the providers. They're the, they have to be fully competent. They can't be vulnerable. They can't show all these quote unquote emotions that are, you know, they're not allowed to feel. So I, I don't know one man that I have, that I know personally that I've worked with that does not experience that from at least from time to time when their partner is upset about something. How you day, how you day, that was the voice of Sylvie. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever heard of attachment styles? Yes, attachment styles as it pertains to relationships, friendships, whatever, but most particularly relationships. Apparently, there are several attachment styles that really help you understand how to understand yourself as well as understand the partner you're with. Oftentimes, we're projecting our insecurities onto each other without even doing the deep, hard work that we need to do within ourselves. And that's what Sylvie is an expert in. She's an expert in helping people understand their attachment styles, but also how to communicate boundaries. I find that if you don't know how to communicate boundaries in any relationship, platonic or not, you are not going to be able to go far because that inability to communicate what is safe for you and what is crossing the line for you can make a relationship or break a relationship. Oftentimes, it leads to breaking because the inability uh, of doing that doesn't allow people to respect you the way you deserve to be respected. So we talk about that. We also talk about her background growing up in multiple different cultures as well. This played a huge role into what she does now. And I think you're going to really like this one. I think you're going to really like this one. And as always, please support our guests the links would be in the show notes enjoy welcome everybody to another episode of as told by nomads and today's guest is someone i'm a huge fan of her name is sylvie hagasian and she is a relationship coach a writer and the founder of love with integrity coaching she's someone who i found on instagram and her stories about modeling boundaries and just helping people on the healing journey is one that i've been fascinated by she was born in saudi arabia and immigrated to the united states at the age of four so you know we're going to be talking about cross-cultural things uh and her experiences traveling the the two very different cultures uh helped her understand the complexity and challenges around identity and how to hold and tolerate differences, even contradictions in oneself within interpersonal relationships. Of course, her extensive background has led her into many things. She is also uh, someone who is quite, quite uh, prominent in the in, in the uh, theatrical fields, particularly acting, and she fuses her knowledge of art 
attachment theory, boundaries, and sociological systems and various forms of creativity in our coaching work and our clients. Welcome to the show, Sylvie. Thank you so much. You make me sound so much juicier than when I wrote that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I had to provide a little context, but to be to be fair, when when I came across your 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 profile, I I don't even think I was doing you enough justice because I did see shades of the the, the, the Brene Browns, and I know you you look up to Esther Perel as well, and, but I could see that in your work, and you put so much, you know, heart into your art. And it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing to, to shine. And I, and I remember um, sharing your work and then we got connected somehow. So I'm so excited to have you on the show. I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> so, so excited. And I love your shirt. For, for those who are listening, he's wearing a really cool, like Superman shirt. Really awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so the, 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 the listeners know I'm a huge fan of Superman and I always call myself the African Superman. So this was a gift someone gave to me. Aww, <laughs> how perfect. So, yes. Hey, speaking of Superman, he's, he's an immigrant. We're immigrants. You are an immigrant, and you—you um, know—you you said you—you you immigrated here as a kid. It was at the age of four, I believe. I was four, four years old. So yes. Talk to me about that. What, what what was it like navigating and straddling all the cultures you had in your formative years and your youth, and how did it play a role in what you do today? So. To take it back a little bit, um, due to the Armenian genocide that happened in 1915, my family was, the survivors were pretty much spread all over, all over the Middle East. And my family ended up in Syria. And due to my dad, my dad had a work opportunity in Saudi Arabia. So my sister and I were born in Saudi Arabia. So I lived there for three years of my, of my early childhood. And then we came back to Syria. We kind of straddled back and forth between Syria and Saudi Arabia. And then my parents, my mom, my dad, my sister, and I basically left our entire extended family and traveled up to a faraway land called Los Angeles, California. <laughs> with the hopes of what many of us as immigrants leave behind our worlds for is more opportunity and safety and, um, you know, equality for men and women. That was something that was very uh, challenging where we were growing up in Syria and in Saudi Arabia. So um, it has been quite the journey. You know, as a child, I didn't really recognize the challenges because I was so young. I was able to kind of adapt and assimilate pretty quickly. Yeah. But I was still very much immersed in the Arabic and Armenian culture, which was so much a part of like, we would watch Arabic TV. It was always, you know, the cultural pieces were always around. Um, we went to church, we went to Armenian Saturday school, and it wasn't until I think I was an adult and started entering relationships where I was like, wow, things are really different. Like there's a lot of, we see things very differently relationally. Mm -hmm. And I think that's when I really started to see some of the, my own internalized systemic layers of things starting to show up, which was I thought I like, oh no, I'm good. <laughs> I bypassed it. I don't have to deal with this stuff. But it was it was really recent, actually. I would say within the last in, in this current relationship that I'm in, the last six years or so, it really started to come up. It's fascinating for me because you you grew up in you know you're shredding all these worlds, and and I grew up in five countries and four continents. By the time I was I was um you know 18, 17, 17 turning 18, and I I, I always tell people that it, I didn't start processing it until I was older. And it's always hard for people to understand because the first decade of my life was spent in dictatorships and military regimes. So we were just in and out of 
just depression. <laughs> but then we moved to civilian and then you move around in different parts of the world. And the word you brought up there, assimilation, which is a word I have come to despise now, not for what it means, but for the application of it. But it was something I did as a kid a lot of times. And I've taken a lot of my identity back at the older I've gotten, but that concept of assimilation the idea of you know fitting into one culture and sometimes stripping your own your own self is, is something that I've been unlearning as as I've gotten older. And you said you've been learning about that even in your your current relationship. So I'm, I'm curious, what is it about relationships that gets us to really look within ourselves? <laughs> what is it about a relationship with someone else that says no? Start with yourself <laughs> to figure that out. <laughs> That question, I mean, relationships are the most powerful portal to yeah. help us see these parts of ourselves that are we're not able to see on our own. And I think that's one of the one of the one of the reasons why I love working, you know, with couples and, and people that are in in intimate romantically is because we often take those challenges that are presented on the surface as bad things, right? Oh my goodness, I feel bad in this relationship. Therefore, it must mean that this is not a good match for me. Well, we have to contextualize what those bad feelings are actually about, right? And I'll give you an example. In my own relationship, <clears throat> when I met my partner, he was um, very supportive of women in his work and very much empowering and an advocate. And I'm, I'm a woman, but because I've had so much inequality culturally and there's been very much uh, power imbalance in, in, in gender, I would get upset about that. And I was mm. like, what is wrong with me? What the heck? Why would I not want my partner to be uplifting and empowering? And I would get so activated. And I had to do so much work in therapy about this piece to really get in touch with all the internalized self-hate mm. and um, just recognizing that, you know, this relationship was really inviting me to step into my authentic self, which is not easy to do. It's painful. And there's, there's, there's growing pains that come along for the ride. And so that's part of the challenge. I think when we're in relationships is like doing that excavating work, right? The digging work, what is this about? Let's contextualize. And that's why I love working with, I think it's so essential. We look at the wider lenses and the bigger systems, yeah. because if we don't do that and we just kind of get stuck on the little details of things, we're missing all of the ways in which oppression shows up. And I think that for me has been probably the most life-changing piece in helping both within my own relationship, but and also in, with other couples as well. Wow. Does that resonate for you at all? No, it's resonating. I've expressed this to you so many times. I mean, how much I love your work because it came to me as such a, a pivotal moment for me. And I, I, I subscribed to your newsletter and you were doing a series. You, I think it was listening to your inner child. And I remember you had it goes with what you're saying, a few journaling prompts, right? And one of the questions was, are there any patterns of relationship, relational conflict that mirror your experiences as a child? And when you're talking about what you, you're experiencing with, you know, your partner and all these things, that part, that inner child conversation, which is you and I seem to have had when we got older, I don't know that people have models for that because I go to therapy too. I go actually I have therapy an hour after our call. <laughs> so, <laughs> and that's one of the things I've been working on with therapy is having that conversation with my inner child and, 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 you know, 
Nigerian culture and all these, you know, the masculinity culture and all these cultures, but someone listening out here is probably at a crossroads right now. Maybe the pandemic has put that person at a stance to where they're questioning things, who they are, who they want to be, who they want to be in a relationship, how they want to show up, but they might not have a framework for how to actually talk to that inner child uh, or even know where to start. What would you say to that person? How to start talking to their inner child. Um, let me see. Can, can you give me a little bit more on what you mean? So I sure, can... sure, sure. I, like I, one of my favorite ways that you do it is your journaling prompt. Right? So, you know, when you, when you had that patterns question, I think you followed it up with how did you manage and, ma and navigate those experiences? And do you tend to express your childhood vulnerabilities to others? And if you don't express them, what gets in the way? And so I guess what I'm asking is how, how can people be honest with themselves about how they, you know, what their inner child did and how their inner child handled uh, conflict. Beautiful. Thank you so much for clarifying that. That's really helpful. Yep. You know, I think one of the things we can do, all of us, um, myself and you included, all of us, the whole world, <laughs> is to really look at our relationships as those mirrors, whether it's romantic or friendship, uh, because mm. friendship is, is, is extremely powerful as well to help us to start to use the, the things that activate us. Okay, I just want to caveat, unless there's red flags, if there's somebody that's abusing you, you know, um, putting down your, your character, um, that's, you know, blaming and criticizing for everything, like unless there's some really, really big red flags going on. So really contextualizing what's happening in me when I am being activated in my relationships. What yeah. is this pointing to? Because yeah. I find that when, when, when we're not in close relationships, sometimes it's harder for these things to surface. Yes. And it's kind of like the catch 22, right? I, I, we want to be close and intimate with people, but it is, it is usually going to bring up both the beautiful side and also the challenging side. So if something is coming up, what, what are the core vulnerabilities? What are the core things that continue to show up in my relationships? Um, and starting to recognize that we each have a few vulnerabilities that tend to last and come with us along for our life journey forever. That doesn't mean that we, you know, can't do healing work and can't, you know, can't do therapy and can't do things to help manage those and express those things from a more regulated place. But I tend to find that, especially some of the earlier childhood wounding things, if a parent experienced, you know, uh, if a child experienced parents going through a really painful divorce, force. Um, if a child experienced a lot of intense anger at the home and it was never, you know, spoken about or contextualized, um, if there was any kind of abandonment at a young age, you know, those yeah. are things that can carry on into yeah. our adult relationships. So spend some time really thinking about what the arguments you have with people in your life are about. It's really so, about it's so powerful you know with my ex um i had a it was a very toxic relationship but one of the things i really learned is actually what got me to therapy but we both had childhood traumas or childhood centered around hers was around abandonment abandonment and mine was around not feeling enough and it was this was the, these were from conversations we we're having with our inner child and i remember unpacking those things uh in, in therapy and seeing how i was reacting to conflict that way you know, the idea of not feeling enough was like, oh, wait, you know, because in you know, toxic relationships, it's, it depends. So, so I was like, wait, I keep trying, I keep trying, I keep trying. And, and, it, and it was just triggering me in such a way where 
I started to lose my self-worth. And I didn't know why I felt like I was losing myself or even I felt like I was doing what I was supposed to do, but it was because I didn't actually feel like I was doing enough. And I was like, well, where did that come from? <laughs> and I remember having conversations with parents and, 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 you know, a therapist and it was, it was just unlearning and accepting that you were enough in that moment. And yes, that was based on this arbitrary thing, but I had to really sit down with myself. And it took a long time. It was a long time. I think I even DM'd you one time. I said, do you you have any different broken hearts or something like that? I remember, um, but I I was just, it was, but it was something I needed to go through. And so when you were saying that, I I hope people are understanding that it's, it's much more than that. It's, it's a process. And and there's layers to it, right? One piece can be maybe inner child stuff. And mm-hmm. maybe it has nothing to do with inner child mm-hmm. stuff. Maybe it has to do with the fact that, you know, the, the, the narrative for men is that they, you know, up until, up until now, they're the providers, they're the, they have to be fully competent, they can't be vulnerable, they can't show all these quote unquote emotions that are, you know, they're not allowed to feel. So, I, I don't know one man that I have that I know personally that I've worked with that does not experience that from at least from time to time when right. their partner is upset about something. Yeah. Yeah. That's so fair. it's like there's That's so fair. many, so many layers to this kind of stuff, right? Yeah. Well, okay, that leads me to this. One of my favorite things that you've done is attachment styles. I, I know you like you took what was ready there and you made it digestible for us. So first of all, for the audience, can you explain what attachment styles are? And then we can break it down and unpack the different types of attachment styles. Sure. Um, So attachment theory was a theory developed by uh, John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth. And essentially, they studied how children were emotionally bonded to their primary caregiver, the the person that was responsible for attuning to them to really be uh, helping them with their co-regulation so that they're soothing them and being present for them. And based on that dynamic, um, the theory shows that those created different kinds of attachment formations, which can be mirrored and replayed out and recreated in adult relationships. So you want me to walk through what they are? Yes, please. That, sure. yeah. You got it. So this is the, this is the very basic 101 version. This, there's, these are complex, but I'm going to do my best to, to, really, to really do them justice, to give them justice. I don't know what I'm saying. All right. So the first version, the first uh, attachment is secure attachment, which is really essentially having a caregiver that was present enough at the time. This is not perfection. This parent, you know, this caregiver mm-hmm. makes makes mistakes, but they repair quickly. They see like, oh, I didn't, you know, sue them the way that they needed to. Let me go back and do what's appropriate that's necessary in a way that's attuned to that specific, specific child. And to to clarify by caregiver, I don't necessarily mean the parent, although it usually is the mother, but it really is the person that is designated to be that emotional regulator. So it can be a grandparent um, in a same sex couple. It's the person that is the more, it's the go-to person for that for that role. And usually there is one person that takes that on. Again, a grandparent, an uncle, an aunt. And so with that secure functioning, that child can start to really cry out and they start to build that expectation internally that there's going to be a reliable person that's going to be there for them, that's going to show up and that's going to soothe them in a way that actually is supportive and not overwhelming. Um, So that's what creates secure, secure attachment. Then we have anxious attachment, which is a caregiver that was 
not very consistent in their availability. So sometimes they were really present and they were really attuned and other times they were perhaps disengaged. Maybe they were going through their own experiences. So that child was really left, not necessarily phys physically alone, but emotionally that regulation piece did not um, was not tended to. So that child can grow up having really strong fears of abandonment because yeah. of that inconsistency. Like, I, I wait, you, you were there. I know you can show up for me, but you're not showing up for me. What is going on? And there can be a lot of anger in somebody that grew up with this attachment style. And I think the challenge is that we don't have have like this awareness of like what happened in childhood. These are all implicit memories that are really, really out of our awareness, but we're having a response in our adult relationships. So that's why connecting the dots and trying to understand the map of our childhood story can be really, really helpful. So the third uh, attachment is avoidant, dismissive avoidant attachment. And these are children that were often left alone a lot emotionally. They were not engaged with much at all. Um, they really are more left brain oriented, um, really great at doing tasks. You know, maybe the family really honored the child for getting things done, but not really for who they were, the beingness of them. And they really struggle in relationships to bond, to connect. And they're yeah. really good self-sufficient solo regulators, but almost like in a dissociative way. Like it's hard for them to rely and co-regulate because they can't trust. It's hard to trust. Not they can't, it's hard to trust. Yeah. And then we have the most recent one that was added, um, which is disorganized attachment, which really comes from a child growing up in a, either like a really chaotic environment, abusive environment, um, or parents were just, the parent was really dysregulated themselves or going through their own losses and they weren't avail available to be there for the child. And they were really intense and maybe even scary to the child. So this child both relied on the person, but they were also, they were terrified at the same time, which creates like this push pull. I want relationships, but I, I'm so afraid and I can't rely. So it's really, really challenging to, this is definitely, I shouldn't say this is the most difficult one to work with, I, I'm almost hesitant to say that, but I, I do want to say that because this tends to be the one that really I, I really recommend therapeutic support for, because having a solid container to process the abusive experience or the really um, frightening experience, um, it's it's really challenging to to navigate that on your own. I don't know how you can in many ways. Does that help clarify them? Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Just wanted to stop by here before we get back to the episode. I wanted to let you all know that I do have a 
collective for people who are interested in developing their cultural competency skills, becoming more anti-racist. And it's a resource of things that you can do with your family, with your school, with yourself to work through your individual journey to become a better culturally competent leader. It's called UID Collective, and the link is in the show notes, but it's a mix of courses, it's a mix of resources, things you can download, and all you need to do is sign up as a member. It's a monthly membership. I'd love for you to check it out, use it with your friends, use it with your family, use it with yourself, okay? The link is in the show notes. It's called UID Collective, and it's for those of you that want to improve your cultural competency skills. Back to the episode. This is that's so beautiful, and it's a framework, and for those listening... All you need to do is go to our Instagram and you will have even more context for that. But I hope that set a framework for you. And the reason why I wanted you to provide that picture is because I find that when we're, you're listening in an audio format and you explain in different ways, people can start to find themselves in, in, in the story. So someone can say, oh, I know someone like that, or I'm like that, or that's, whoa, that makes sense. And so if that was happening in you as Sylvie was talking, check out our website, which will be in the show notes, but also dive into uh, some of the, the frameworks where she, she even goes beyond what, what she just said. But that's the first step, you know, even just acknowledging uh, that this is how you react to certain things. And there's a certain amount of power to that because one of the things that I've been figuring out as I've been going to therapy and, and doing coaching and even coaching myself with, with a lot of the work I do is when people can finally put language to something that they've been feeling, it helps them feel like they're not alone. And it's like, Oh, okay. That makes sense. There's a path now I'm going to work on this. And, 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 and I think that's what we need to do more today in, in our society. I couldn't agree more. I think that was the biggest attachment work was what I studied in grad school. It was, we had many theoretical orientations when I was uh, in my, master's program and this was the one that was like oh like, <laughs> i was like oh this is going right. to be a, gonna be a church choir moment but it was really really illuminating and just really named a lot of like you said it named the experience that i had and it made sense why i was the way that i was in my adult relationships and i was able to have more compassion with myself i was able to you know, to lighten a little bit of that self-blame, the shame. Mm. And I do think connecting the thoughts of our stories and making sense of those things is a really po powerful part of our healing. I really, really agree with you on that. I agree. I agree. Well, well speaking of healing and self-compassion, setting healthy boundaries is one of the best ways to do that. And, you know, you do a lot of work around boundaries. So why do we need to set boundaries in the first place? And what is the difference between healthy boundaries and unhealthy boundaries? What's the best way to dive into this one? <laughs> I know it's a lot. I know it's a lot. <laughs> well, with boundaries. So boundaries essentially are it's a boundary is it's a way to protect our integrity our well-being emotionally spiritually physically um intellectually and one of the things i talk about actually in my in my boundary program is is how knowing what our boundary vulnerabilities are or might be can help us to know where we might be a little bit more protective of creating boundaries so for example and this is from the work of um I'm going to blank out on her name right now. I have to come back to her before I share her work. <laughs> <Hold on. laughs> it's going to come back to me. So 
Um, there are four particular boundaries. You're going to have to add this in the show notes, Teo. I can't not credit people when I, when I talk about well, that. I'll, I'll make sure I provide the show notes. <laughs> no problem. But that happens to me and it frustrates me too. But, but this amazing woman, it sounds like, yes. helped. <laughs> amazing woman who basically she named four different types of boundaries, which was the emotional, the physical, the spiritual, and the intellectual. And that framework for me was like another one of those singing moments, but I won't do it again to spare everyone's ears. Mm -hmm. um, but so an emotional boundary being violated would be somebody dismissing our emotions and validating our emotions, gaslighting on the other extreme end of it, you know, pretending like we don't even have the experience that we're having. Um, then we have intellectual boundaries. When these things get injured, when somebody invalidates our opinion, our perspective, our thoughts around things, um, then the physical boundaries are usually the most easy for people to understand. You know, somebody getting into our physical space without consent. And even, even spaciousness, right? Like I know for me, I have a certain spaciousness when I'm meeting someone for the first time. And if they go come up really, really close to me, like my body just like bursts, like far, far away. And then there's spiritual boundaries where, when those can, those can get violated. If we grow up in an environment or if we aren't in an environment that really uses spirituality to bypass our humanness, right. Mm. Or they don't allow you to really cultivate your own relationship with spirituality in a way that really honors your path. So looking at those, the, the reason I'm going in that direction is because I think most of us are vulnerable with at least one of those things. Like I know mm. for me, emotional invalidation happened a lot. And I have to be really vigilant around like, because our radars start to go off. Like we don't wreck, once it's been violated enough times, we start to lose access to that radar system. And if anything, we, we, we get drawn to recreating familiar scenarios. So we might be drawn to people who end up, you know, re hurting us in those same ways. So recognizing yeah. what am I vulnerable to? What am I sensitive towards? And starting to really speak those boundaries. You know, if somebody is emotionally validating, you know, one of the things I now practice as a boundary is, you know, I really get that you might not understand what I'm going through, but it's really important for me that you validate what I'm going through. And I speak it. Wow. I mean, it's not easy to, but I do. And I, I really pay attention to how people respond huh. to that. So you actually communicate that. You actually say, yes. and it's, it's Okay. And is the lady, I was doing some Google, is the lady Christy Hall? No. It's not Christy Hall? Ah, oh, never no. mind. I was on Google four types of essential boundaries and she, 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 uh, she was it. putting the, the same one there. But while, while um, Sylvie is, is, is making sure she credits the, the person, <laughs> what I wanted to say to the audience is, it, uh, you, I've been doing this podcast since 2014. We've been talking about different ways to communicate, either whether it's to communicate with impact, communicate effectively across cultures, or just communicate in general. But the thing that I was fascinated in hearing Sylvie talk is that the communicating never stops. Even as you're learning things that, that it needs to be a shared experience, especially if it's a, it's a life partner, even if it's, if it's with your team or, or with anyone that you work with or a friend, right? I, I know, I know some people in the audience might have lost friends, but when you don't communicate your boundaries, well, that's usually when all these disconnects start to happen. And so if you can figure out what, which of your boundaries are not being, you know, respected in the moment. It's important to then say, this is what's happening. These boundaries are not being met. And, you know, it might lead to a reconciliation or it might lead to a separation, but either way, that is something you need to honor because it, it's, it's going to help you with your, with your dignity and your, and your, your self-worth. Did you find her? 
I did. Yes. Okay. <laughs> and her name is uh, Raquel Lerner. Ra Raquel Lerner? Yes. Okay, Raquel Lerner. Yes. Well, there you go. Raquel, thank Raquel you so Lerner. much. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, okay, so so those are those are ones. And you said you do a lot of coaching around this too, and you have programs around that. It, has it been hard for people to communicate these boundaries or maintain these boundaries in the pandemic? I think that the pandemic, you know, when I talk about boundaries, I talk, when I talk about anything, I talk about context because context is, it's, it's like the, and to even define what context means, it's like the container in which something exists within, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the context shapes and changes what's inside of it. So the That's pandemic right. is like a brand new context that we're all experiencing for the first time. So we're really experiencing brand new challenges. And um, I think a lot of boundaries have softened in some ways and a lot of boundaries have needed to become more rigid because of like, for example, social distancing and certain things. And due to our capacities, a lot of people are you know, not able to really spend time or even, even communicate on the phone if we're not able to see each other. So I think managing our expectations as well is really, really vital. But I'm talking about two very kind of different spheres of boundaries. One of them is more like a boundary of disrespect, which was the yes. four that we kind of named. And then there's different kinds where there's capacity boundaries. And I just, you know, I've hit my limit with talking about this for today. Let's put the pandemic talk aside and just let's do something fun, you mm -hmm. know, really trying to empower people to, first of all, not even use the word boundaries, because I think boundaries is such a charged word nowadays mm. and as soon as people hear they're like oh, like it's just it can feel a little it can feel a little rejecting and oftentimes it's not the most connection oriented terminology to use when we're just trying to communicate something that's important for us whether that's a need or it's a limit um so yeah i, I definitely think that you know whether in, in the online dating for singles domain, the, the boundaries challenges are how do I communicate what my physical spacious needs are? And in couples, how do I communicate whether I need some alone time without offending my partner? You know, one of the, one of the biggest things that challenges that couples have shared is that like, I, like I'm spending so much time with my person or my, you know, with the people that I'm in relationship with, but we're not actually connecting. Mm. It's like this illusion of connection happening, but we're just, we're just spending time. And that's what I mean when I say the boundaries have really softened and kind of shut down in some ways in the containers for work and, and, you know, all the different other things besides being in a relationship have been really blurred and the roles have been really merged together. Well, you've touched on my favorite thing there, which is what I study for a living. Well, connection and identity, but I'm curious to hear your perspective. How can we intentionally build connection then? You know, because I, I see, I see how you, you do with your partner and I see how you talk about it sometimes and it, it, you make intention, you know, I remember you took a trip at one time, but I'm sure that was, that was also part of the intention. We need to connect here. We need to do this here. So what are the ways to really get at that heart of connecting? Because you touched on it. We are in a swiping generation now, right? And, he, and <laughs> look, look at your face. <laughs> like, I did ah. it. I did it, Tara, for five years. It was so hard. <laughs> <laughs> but we are, we are, we are. And even obviously with being healthy and safe, that also, you know, it, it's part of the, the consequence as well. So when you have those moments, sometimes it's hard to figure out that container, the context with, with written word. You know, sometimes you get to the virtual part, but then you meet in person and then, you're getting over those jitters, but it's not the same as an in-person. So how can you intentionally create and communicate what is important to foster connection? 
I mean, I think this will look different for people that are in the new stage of getting to know each other and single yeah. versus a longer term couple that is navigating the challenges of the pandemic together. For sure. Um, I think, I'm trying to think which one, because I, I feel like I have different responses to both well, of them. Well, let's start with a new one. Let's start with a new one first. And then we'll go to the old one. Like you just, you're, you're just now thinking about about dating, and you're, you know, it's, <laughs> and you're yes. trying to connect as well. Yeah. I think one of the really important things for people that are single and dating is to actually have the conversation about boundaries before meeting, because if we don't feel, because boundaries help us feel safe, right? They help yes. us feel safe, and they, like you said, they create the container. Yeah. So. I don't recommend waiting until you're with the person to then have a conversation about, well, let's be six feet apart because that's going to be awkward as heck, <laughs> you know, <laughs> no, you stay over there. <laughs> so just, you know, be cool, be light. Like everyone's in this, nobody's, a, this isn't some foreign thing that only I'm going through by myself, you know, <laughs> just, just be human. Like, you know, I, I, I really like our connection. I'm so looking forward to seeing you. I'd love to just talk about what, you know, what our limits are, what are yours and don't just make it about you. You know, I think that's what happens. Like we get into this like self-protection mode where then we stop inviting the other person's experience. Facts. Yes. Yes. Okay. So communal talk about our, you know, what are our expectations? What are our boundaries? And that, that opens, that softens it. And that lets people talk about this. Okay. Well, all right. Well, six feet, we can do this, we can do that. And then if we get to know, uh, each other. These are some of the things that we, we can work on, right? Yeah, and, uh, and and I think the rest of dating probably is the same. I would me, imagine. I mean, I, I, I have so a too. few friends that are uh, that are in the dating phase and that have been dating throughout the pandemic. I think once the boundaries have been clarified and. It just really depends on what your intentions for dating are. Some people are dating to date. They, they want that more casual experience. Some people are dating to um, create something a little bit more um, of a committed relationship. So having clarity on that is always really helpful. And, and communicating those things early on, getting used to just communicating what your, what your intentions are, what your desires are. And sometimes you might not know and you need to date to find out. I am so a fan of the exploration part of dating and the self-discovery that comes with that, right? (laughs) That's so true. That's so true. Um, Okay, fair enough. And and even in a long-term relationship, it's it's just committing to continuously learn each other. I think relationships get in trouble when you you just forget that it's a it's a continuous process. You know, maybe sometimes you you get mad at the, the fact that this isn't the person you married or this isn't the person you first dated and then you you hold on to sort of resentment for that. Or maybe you don't communicate something that bothered you a few years ago, but the pandemic has now made it just in your face all the time. And so it's like, ah, why didn't you tell me before? And then it's vice versa and it's back and forth. But that idea of, of creating those containers to say, Hey, let's do this every time. Let's do these check-ins. Let's do these things. Let's talk about, you know, but to answer your question about creating connection, because I'm realizing I didn't answer that piece is, is, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a supporter of, you know, helping people to create mutuality and reciprocity. So, Hmm asking questions, you know, that you really want to know about the other person with, and paying attention to their body language is a question 
you know, too deep? Is it like, how are, how are you noticing their facial responses as you're engaging with them? Are you taking risks to share? I think, you know, this is some, something that's going to depend person to person on how much you, you feel comfortable to share from the beginning. But in order for connection to happen, we have to take risks of vulnerability. We have yes. to actually share who we are and we take a risk and we pay attention. Is this person also taking a risk too? For people that tend to be more anxiously attached, there's a tendency to overshare. And because of that, like here, let me show this person who I am to see if they're going to accept me. But by doing that, it can kind of set them up for a situation that they're they're, di they're diving into the deep end of the pool. And the other person's like, wait a minute, I just got my floaties on. I'm not ready. And this was a great <laughs> metaphor by, by a friend, my, my friend, Amy Young, that she, she, she gives this beautiful analogy of the, of the going too deep too quickly. And for people that have more avoidant tendencies, just to, you know, circle back with attachment, there's a tendency to not take risks very much at all yes so that connection is not gonna is not gonna really happen for the person themselves if they're not taking those risks and it can feel really scary and learning how to how to do that in a way that really honors your boundaries but also okay you know this person is showing me that they're they're interested and it's a dating is a risk there is no guarantee it's, there's there's no, no guarantee. guarantee with not even long-term relationships. There's no guarantee. Same. Yeah. You know, one thing I've learned, I've learned for myself too, is I, I I'm, I'm one of those people that can go deep <laughs> quicker. And I, I've come across uh, people as I've, I've been dating who, you know, might've had some of the attachment styles that you said, but it, it's from experience. So it's not a, they don't like uh, you or anything. It's just, they, they have, they have to be more careful in their approach because they're, they don't want to get hurt or they don't want to take that risk because life is showing them that and that, and it's different attachment styles. And something I had to learn was that what they're communicating is not disinterest. It's more like they're just, this is how they process it. And I have to know the difference with mine and, and that person's styles. But then it also made me wonder, is it possible for those two opposing styles to actually be in a relationship or, okay. Okay. You're saying yes. You're saying yes. Because, because you know, your head goes into different places. You're like, well, okay. Do I need someone who's just as deep or who's just as willing rather to go deep quickly? Or is it okay if the other person is the opposite on that side and then you balance each other out? I don't know. These are just thoughts that come into my head. I love, I love those questions that you're pondering because I think a lot of people listening think about those things, especially yeah. people that follow your podcast. I imagine they're into self-discovery, they're into yeah. self-growth and they're into that stuff. So yeah. I'm sure that there's a desire for them to, you know, want to be dating people that are also invested in those similar things. Yeah. 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 And you know, the, it, this is you're making me. You're, I'm using myself as a guinea pig here, but it's please. Good. I love that. That helps. <laughs> no, helps. I love. No, I'm. 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 I'm always a fan of that. But, but then you start. Then you. You could be. You have to be careful not to be into the sabotage territory where it, it, you're like, okay, that's not what that person is saying. You're just translating it as that, and it might just the time that that person needs is fair. And you communicating how you are is also fair, and then letting what happens. Um, you know, happen, you know, just be patient to let what happens happen instead of you, you know, saying, well, you didn't do that. So that's why I decided to move on. And then first was like, wait, I was just processing it. It's like a balance. I, I don't know. It, it's, there are obviously a lot of other mitigating factors that, that play a role into that. And you can see red flags to green flags and all those things, but, um, they're but I love questions. what you're talking about. You're asking these beautiful questions and you're pondering about these things that I think 
so many of us think about in what's enough, what was enough to really build a connection what's, and where's the part of me that needs to kind of stretch my own tolerance for embracing the person as they are. And where's the, you know, where's that balance where it's enough, it creates enough of a connection to build and there's no answer for that, right? There's it's no like, answer. Hey. That is the thing. <laughs> and that the is the thing part. we have to get used to. <laughs> there is no answer. And you have to be okay. It's always going to look different, right? Uh, and I do but this you with said, my work. You said a word that really stood out, which was willingness. And Will. that is the biggest piece is if I'm sharing and I'm creating, cultivating that space of connection, Taya, was the other person also investing. And if they're not, maybe they don't realize they're not. How mm. can I invite them and see, you know, I realized I've been sharing a lot about, you know, my, my, my stuff. Cause I want to feel closer to you. I would love to know more about you. Tell me, tell me, you know, some of the stuff that you might not necessarily, you know, you might not usually share, but if you, if you feel safe to share, I would love to be a safe space for you to share yeah. inviting people, because I think that's missing. I think that assertiveness with like really inviting people to see if they're um, you know, one of the things I did early on with my partner, and this is where the, the cross-cultural piece really, really stood out. I grew up in a very communal um, family system. My partner grew up in a very individualistic system. His family mm. was spread, you know, spread all over America. And he never really was staying in consistent contact with people regularly. And I was like, ah, I need to check in every morning. Like my nervous system can't tolerate going all day. <laughs> and I told him because I knew in my past relationships, that was, I was like, it was just not going to work for me. And I made it really clear, but that's because I, again, I have had the history of understanding myself through the past. I need, a, I need that. And that's something that I really, you know, there's no pressure from you. You don't have to do this but this is what will help me. And that was hard as heck just to communicate because of course someone could say no, or they, you know, inviting someone to share more vulnerability. They might look at you like, who the heck do you think you are? Like, I'm not going to share more. Like I'm sharing enough. So we have to engage with that risk and that, that we have to be an active participant to see if we're able to cultivate a connection and enough of us. It's like that third entity between us, right? Mm. Is there, is there, is there something that we can navigate together? Is there willingness for both people to invest in this third entity? And I, I think that that is really important to see because that, that makes us, I don't know. I just, I feel like there's something that can be missing if we just kind of leave things as is and just kind of say, well, no, they weren't willing to share. Well, maybe they just didn't even realize they weren't even sharing. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a, there's a humility that comes with that, you know, as well, because sometimes you, you have your, your pride and your ego and you're like, I'm not going to be the first one to do it. And even as a man, you know, there's the masculinity aspect of that. Like, well, why do I, I did it the first time and I got bit the first, you know, I'm not doing it again. Uh, so many things, but it all comes to this thing with inquiry. We need to be able to ask questions, whether it's of ourselves or to others and, and not be afraid to do those prompts, those journal prompts. And it's, it's, it's a simple thing to do, but it's not easy to apply. Like, why am I feeling this way? Why does my body react that way? Why does what she, he, they say bother me in these moments? And why have I avoided that? When you start asking yourself those questions and you start getting familiar with patterns that you, you know, that, that you're used to and patterns that affect you, it becomes easier for you to communicate those things to people. And it's okay to get help for that because it's it's something that we're, we're never meant to do by ourselves alone in a room or on top of a hill, right? Yeah. It's okay for someone that 
whether it's a therapist or a coach that helps ask you questions. For some of us, that self-awareness piece and to cultivate insight can be really hard to yeah. do on our own, right? Yeah. Having someone that can ask you, you know, Teo, what was that like for you when you went on that date? And helping to bring it back to you and your vulnerability and your experience. Because I know for me, when I used to go to therapy, I used to just be like, well, this person did this, 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 and this. <laughs> and my therapist is like, interesting, Sylvie. What would what was that like for you? I was like, shit. <laughs> I was like, I don't want to go there. It's, but our, we can convince ourselves that you know it's all out there, and so bringing it back to that self responsibility and just being able to articulate what is coming up for us in a way that doesn't blame, that doesn't criticize, and invites other people. Um, we're modeling that for others when we well, do that. Hey. Well. You just said it there. How can people work with you? Uh, what do you, what coaching programs do you offer and where can they find that? I actually am not taking on any one-on-ones or doing any coaching at the time at this time soon, but I have a couple online programs, one on boundaries and uh, one on dating and attachment styles that, um, they can find if they reach out to me on my website, they can find those programs. And also most of the stuff that I'm sharing about lives on my Instagram world. Instagram world and the online programs are also on the website, which we'll put in the show notes as well. I'll send you the links. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, the last question I always ask my, my guest <laughs> Sylvie is my mission statement reframed as a question. So mm. Sylvie, how do you use your difference to make a difference? Hmm. My goodness. How do I use my difference to make a difference? I think Honoring my difference allows me to embrace the difference in others. Honoring your difference allows you to embrace the difference in others. Well, there you have it. <laughs> is that my new Instagram quote of the day, Tyler? <laughs> <laughs> it is. Yeah, it works. It works. It's quotable. But uh, seriously, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I know you're very busy and, uh, you know, it's always an honor to talk to you. So thank you for guiding us on our relational pieces of, of potential conflict, but also connection. Appreciate it so much. My absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. Pleasure's mine. Kings, queens, and royalty. Until next time, use a difference to make a difference. You've just been listening to the As Told by Nomads podcast. For more ways to reach out to Tayo and to use your difference to make a difference, head over to www.tayoroxon.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.